does it cost to raise a child? Do you know how much money it costs? You could, this is a participation. Got a million? Okay, that's three billion. Okay, he's not used to telling the truth. So taxes? What'd you say? You pay your parents' taxes. Not true. More than $100,000. That's a pretty good guess. Well, we got... You, you're not sure. You, you've got twins in your family, so it's not all that... The math doesn't work out the same. What we got back there, Caleb? What do you think? That's a little high, but that, that, that was, was 700000 a little high. Seventy? No, that more than that. We should be closing in on a range right here. 6K is less than what we just said. Math is not one, for one kid. I need someone to ballpark me. Gomez. Three, that's pretty close. Okay, that's close enough. I'm not waiting. Um, so, <laughs> I shouldn't have let him talk. He keeps talking. So I looked it up. Here's what I found, okay? In 2018, someone did a study, and here's what it was. Every child, allegedly, costs $233,610, okay? You hear that again? $233,610, which is why when we found out we were pregnant, I thought, man, we must need a raise or something, because that's a lot of money. I don't have that much money. That sounds like a lot of money. And now the question is, uh, as we look around the room, Okay, do the math here. Or maybe don't do the math. You guys are expensive. That's what I thought. I thought if it's expensive out of one, what about like a hundred of you guys? That's expensive. That doesn't even include college. That doesn't include all the extras. That's just like getting by. And what I realized was, oh no, I am going to have to pay $233,610 on average for every kid. And that seems crazy to me. But you know what I never... Uh, I never questioned. I never questioned whether or not I was going to do it. I didn't think, you know, um, the little Eden girl, I don't think she is going to get that much. We'll just, uh, we'll just get one, one little uh, pair of clothes. You know what I'm talking about? The one little white uh, jumper. One, onesie, sorry. Jumper, that's for adults. Just give her one of those. Stroller, she doesn't need a stroller. She doesn't need any of that. Uh, no, crib, nope. She can just sleep on the ground. We got pillows, right? Why not, right? I never had that thought. I just thought, you know what? We're, we're spending the money. It'll be good. You know why? Because she, she's our daughter, right? And that's why your parents spend money on you. Maybe not as much money as you'd like them to spend on you. Maybe you have some ideas of how they could spend more money on you. But the truth is, they've spent a lot of money on you. And there was never a question about that. It was never like, oh, I may or may not take care of you. It's like, no, you're my kid. I'm going to take care of you. Why? The, the, the ultimate thing is because they love you, and they're not here, so you can, you can nod. You can say, yeah, I guess they do love me. And I love my daughter, even though she's not even born yet. And I know I'm going to spend the money. I'll probably spend too much money because I'm going to choose to love her, okay? That idea, that thought of choosing to love someone that hasn't done anything for you is what we're going to run across today in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's not between a parent and a child, because that happens all the time. Parents choose. I'm going to love my child. I'm going to pay for them. I'm going to change their diapers when they're smelly. I'm going to feed them. It's going to be gross, but I will do all of it because I love them, even though they have not done anything for me. That happens all the time. But it's unique when God says, I'm going to do this for people. I'm going to select a group of people that are going to be my special people. They're going to be like they're my kids. I'm going to give everything to them. I'm going to be so good to them. Even I'm going to be more good to them than I'm going to be to everyone else around them. 
And that introduces the idea of God having a chosen people, which we looked at a little bit. But I want us to all grab our Bibles and look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. So everybody grab a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, because we're going to continue to see what is God's plan here in the Old Testament for his chosen people. That's the main idea, that there are chosen people that God is going to be good to, that God is going to bless. And the reality is there are chosen people in the book of Deuteronomy, this nation of Israel, and the cool truth that the New Testament tells us is there are still God's chosen people here today. There are people on this planet that God has a special love and care for. And we're going to kind of take a first look into what does that mean? God's chosen people, then and now. So let's check it out. In chapter 7, it starts off by God telling these people, after last week, if you remember last week, God said, I want you to know this, that I am the only God that you should serve. Okay, they're about to go into this new land. He says, I am the only God that you're supposed to serve, and you need to love me more than anything else. Love me more than your own life. Love me with everything that you are. And also, keep my law close to you. Memorize my word. Talk about my word, so that when you go into the land, you won't forget about me. Okay? Chapter 7, the first five verses that we'll just skim through right now, what they're all about are the people in the land that God is going to drive out before the Israelites. Basically, the idea is there's this land full of people that God says, I'm going to clear the way for you guys to enter into it. And now on the surface, a lot of people look at that and say, that kind of sounds mean, doesn't it? That God's just going to take away the land from these people? Why does God do that? Does God have a good reason? The answer is yes. The reason is because these people were so sinful. They weren't just a little bit sinful. They were so sinful. They were going after every false god. And the things that they did to worship their false gods were so bad, I couldn't even tell you about some of them. They are so evil and bad. So that's the group of people that he's going to drive out. And what God says is, I want you guys to make sure that you separate completely from them. He says one thing. He says, I don't want any of you. This is in verse 3. I don't want any Israelites marrying people from this land. It's like, why? Does God not like all the people on the earth? Well, that's not why. The reason is because those people were going to turn the Israelites' hearts away from God. And he warns them. He says, don't serve any of the false gods. Don't marry their people. Don't give your sons and your daughters to them in marriage. Don't do any of that. What you need to do is tear down all of those idle high places, the places where they worshiped. Why? Come to our passage right here, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. I want everyone to get their eyeballs on this. Verse 6, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, that word holy, we use it a lot at church, but I want you to understand what that word means. What does it mean to be holy to God? Now, a lot of times when we think of the word holy, what we think of is, I want you to be um, morally good, right? I, I want to be good to God, right? And that's kind of what it's talking about, but I don't think that's the main idea. The, the whole purpose and idea of the word holy here is God says it's like there's a whole group of people, okay? Imagine this whole group of people. And he says, I, I want one, two, three, four, five. You're my people, and you're going to be over here. You don't have to actually get up, but you're going to be my special people, and all the rest, although you're here, you're not going to be the specific group that does what I say. There's going to be a group within the group, a separate group. When you see that word holy here, another word that you could use for that is separate or different, or distinct. He says, I want these Israelites to be different than the rest of the nations. He goes on. He says, the Lord your God 
has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And that basically gets it right there. It's like if we all in this room represent all the nations of the earth, God says, I chose one insignificant person, one family, one nation to be my people out of all the people on the face of the earth. Now, you might say, well, how does God choose? If God is going to have one specific group of people, who is he going to choose? Right? If I said one person in this room is going to like, I don't know, is going to be my friend. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded weird. But it's like, who would I pick? Who would I want to be my friend, right? How about this? Not friend, because that's a little too mean. If I don't choose, you'd be my friend. Sorry. How about this? I want one person to be my pickleball partner. One person. Out of all the people, who am I going to pick? That's the question. Who am I going to pick? I'm not going to pick you if you don't play pickleball. I'm not going to, I'm not, no, I'm not picking you, right? I would probably pick, let me think, who would I pick? I would probably pick, no, I'd probably pick Nick or Lewis. They're probably the best, I think. One of the two, okay? But what if I said, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to pick who's the worst, who's the worst. I'm going to pick that one person that's terrible. Yeah, Chris is pretty bad, that's true. Um, Chris is my partner, right? You say, that doesn't make sense. Why don't you pick the best? Why don't you pick the person who's the greatest? God is about to say to these people, I don't pick the best and the brightest. That's not who I picked. Look at verse seven. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all the people. You were like the smallest person. You're like the person that got picked last in dodgeball, okay? You just were not the greatest. That is Israel. So he says, don't get conceited, don't get puffed up, don't have all this pride thinking that you're the greatest because God actually chose the weakest. These Israelites, it says it wasn't because they were great that God chose to set his love on you, okay? And when you look at this, the word love is used multiple times. In the original language, they are different words, okay? And the word in this verse, verse seven, that he set his love is the word which means that God set his affection, okay, or his, his heart-choosing love, okay? Later, we see that it says he's going to continue to love you and make a commitment to you, but this is like the, the, the most tender word for love that we can really use here, that God chose to set his, his special care on one particular group of people, these Israelites. Verse 8 says, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your father. So two reasons. It's not because they're big and bad and strong. It's because, one, God just chose to set his love on them, and two, he's keeping the promise he made to their fathers, that the Lord has brought you up with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, be certain of this, that the Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant, keeps his promises, and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, okay? God is saying that he is a unique group of people. And here in this context right here, it's this group of Israelites. Today, the New Testament goes even further and says that God doesn't just have one nation out of a lot of nations that's his favorite. It says that today, Christians are God's people and they are everywhere. It's like they're a nation, but they're all um, among all the other nations. That God still has a people today on this planet right now 
that are his special people. And they're not identified simply by who their parents were. They're not identified by what their family tree says. But they are identified by this. The people that love and serve and obey God through a relationship with Jesus. Those are his special people today. Verse 11 of this passage, you can skip down to that. It says, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I have commanded you today. That's the response, just like we've been looking at this whole time in Deuteronomy. What's the response that God's people should have to God's making them his people? The response is, I need to do what God says. Right? That's the response that Christians should have to all of this. So, so what are we looking at tonight? Okay? Basically, the, the foundational thing is I want you to start to understand what it looks like to be God's people. And the reality is, not everybody in here is a part of that group of God's people right now. Not everybody is. That's what makes you, as an audience, different than the audience that got this book in Deuteronomy. They were God's special people as Israelites. Today, God's special people are the born-again Christians, the people who are following God with their whole life. Those are the special people. So that's why what I want to do today is start to understand a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be God's people. That's really what we're going to do. We've got two big points we're going to look at. The first one comes like this. See how people become God's special people. That's the first thing. This is so important. If we're going to understand what it means to be God's people, the first thing we need to understand is how do people go from being just normal people to being God's special people? How does that work? The reason I ask this is because people have a lot of ideas. Because a lot of people want to be God's special people. They want to enter this relationship. And what they think they can do is they think they can earn their way. They think they can get in by being good people, by being better than others. I mean, a lot of different things. Well, I want you to look across the page. If you're in Deuteronomy 7, please look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Look at this. This is Deuteronomy 9, 4. After you write that down, I'd love for you to check that out. Deuteronomy 9, 4. Because the problem is, some of these Israelites got a big head. They got proud. And God actually warns them, don't get proud. When you go into the land and everything goes well for you, don't get proud. Like that last verse said in, in chapter 7, it was, don't think that God chose you because you were a big nation. Now look at chapter 9, verse 4. Look what it says. This is Deuteronomy 9, 4. Do not say in your heart. Don't think this to yourself. Don't even, don't even say this in your heart. Not even just out loud, but to yourself. Don't say this. After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, quote, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. End quote. You see that? Don't think that you are God's people because you are more righteous than other people. Don't think it's because you earned your way. Look what he says next. Whereas, the real reason is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out. Okay? The reason that God gives them the blessing is not because these Israelites earned their way to God. It's because he's doing something, a bigger plan, to drive these other people out and judge them for their sin. Look at verse 5. Again, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And, you see the and right there? Super important and. And, why is God giving them this land? And, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. What was the promise? That they would enter this land. Verse six, know therefore, 
that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness. That's literally the third time in three verses. God has said that. Be very clear about that. Why? For you are a stubborn people. And the rest of that passage talks about how the Israelites did bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. Okay? The first thing that we need to understand about all this, see how people become God's people. We need to understand how it doesn't happen. So your first subpoint says, understand this, that you can't become God's people by being better than others. That's subpoint A. Don't think that you can become one of God's people simply by being better than other people. Okay? The problem is, that is what these Israelites thought looking back. Right? They were God's people, and they thought, well, maybe, maybe I am God's people because God thinks I'm better than other people. The reason I bring this up is because Christians today, some Christians, some people think this about themselves. They think, I am God's people because I earned it. Because I'm righteous. Because look at all those other people. I'm more righteous than them. Right? Which again, God does not deny here. He doesn't deny that they're not more righteous than the other people. All that he denies is they're not righteous. And that's the reality for every person in this room. You are not righteous before God. I am not righteous before God on my own. I can't earn God's favor. I can't make it on my own. Here's what the New Testament says. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the most religious people ever, you will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot go to heaven unless your righteousness is better than the best people that have ever lived. You can't make it to heaven. Wow. So I guess you can't make it to heaven. Well, the answer is yes. The next verse I want you to see, Matthew 5, 24. You can write that passage down too. Later on in that, that chapter, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That right there should completely end any of our ability to think I can earn my way to God. The reality is you cannot earn your way to God. I want everyone to be very clear about that. You cannot earn your way to God. It's impossible. Now, you might have heard that before. You might have heard that a lot growing up, going to Wana, going to Edge, all that stuff. You might have heard that before. But some of you, although maybe you've heard that before, maybe you've never really thought about that. I can't make it on my own. I can't do it. There's nothing I can do to make it to God on my own. Okay? I want you to really think about that. There's a man in the Bible who does think about that. It's actually a story Jesus tells two men. It's a parable he tells. In Luke chapter 18, two men who talk to God. Two men who pray. One of them is one of these Pharisees, a very religious person, does a lot of good things. And what he tells God is, thank you that I'm not as bad as these other people. Thank you for that. I'm not as bad as these other people. I do all these good things. I go to church. I give to the church. I serve the church. I do a million different things, and I am awesome. Thank you. I am not like those bad people over there. Then Jesus says, the bad guy, the tax collector, the evil man, who is truly evil, and in comparison, he is more evil than the Pharisee. He says about him, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, please have mercy on me. Don't punish me. 
I deserve punishment. God, please don't punish me. Jesus says to the crowds, he says, I tell you this, if you want to know something for certain, know this, that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. God declared this guy, he is now righteous, and now the other guy is not. Why? Because he earned it? No, that's not why. He says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's a warning for you, right from Jesus' mouth here in Luke 18, 14, that if you do not humble yourself, recognize I cannot make it to God on my own. If you never do that in this life, you will never get to know God, ever. Nobody. None of you, not me, not you. If you don't admit that you fall short and you can't make it on your own, you can never have a relationship with God. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to obviously recognize, yes, I fall short. And then what does he do? This guy asks God for mercy. He pleads with God, asking God for mercy. Please don't punish me. I deserve to be punished. Please don't punish me. And God in his grace forgives this man. Some of these Jewish people thought, that maybe they're God's people because they're righteous. Okay. That can't do it. Back in our passage in Deuteronomy 7, you saw that it says that God did not choose the Israelites because they were more in number. Okay. It wasn't because they were bigger or smarter or anything. Right? We talked about righteousness. That's talking about morality. Now it's like, well, what if we're just an impressive group to God? What if God just thinks we're cute right? and thinks other people aren't cute? Right? Maybe you've never said that before. Probably never thought that, but that might, that's kind of along the lines of what we're getting at here. It's not because God looked at you and said, there's something in you that's better than in someone else. Okay? That's the idea. Letter B, you cannot become God's people by impressing God. Not by impressing God. So if we're going to see how people become God's people, it's not by impressing God. It's not by doing something or being something that God looks at and says, wow, you must be amazing. I'm going to choose you. You're going to be a part of God's people now. That's never how it works. Never by you impressing God. The reason I bring this up is because chapter 7-7 says that. But further, I think that might be where a lot of you stand with God. Maybe right now, for some of you, you're in the stage of you're trying to impress God. When you say, I want to become a Christian, I want to do the right thing. That's a great thing. That's good. But maybe what you're trying to do right now is say, well, if I can just be that good guy for a couple years, be that good girl for a few years, then maybe God will look at me and say, well, that person's a Christian now. That's what this is saying. Trying to impress God. It will never work. You cannot impress God. A lot of people try to impress God. A lot of people think that maybe they can get to God by trying to do good things and try to impress him. It never works, ever. In fact, just like Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, that God chooses the weak. In the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that sometimes God chooses the weak, the poor, the small to shame the strong. Sometimes he chooses the worst person at dodgeball to beat the best person at dodgeball, okay? So to speak. He doesn't actually do that because if you're bad at dodgeball, you're just going to lose dodgeball. Sorry, but The reality is when it comes to salvation, sometimes God does choose the unlikely people to be saved and he passes over the people that you would think, well, that person's good with God. Because like we saw earlier, everyone who humbles himself, they they will be exalted. 
but the one who never humbles himself. If you're a person, you never humble yourself before God. You never tell God with honesty and sincerity, I know I can never make it with you. If you never do that, you're never gonna be embraced by God. Well then, how does this all work? How do people become God's people? Let us see, pretty simple. We become God's people by God's choice to love them, okay? How do people become God's special people? Right here, not by being better than others, not by impressing God, but by God's choice to love them. Now, that might sound unsatisfying. That might not sound satisfying because you think, oh, well, what is the thing? I thought, I, I thought you were gonna give me like a thing to do. I thought you were gonna tell me like, okay, well, this is how you can impress God. Oh, wait, I can't impress God. If I said, oh, well, maybe if, if you just told me to be better than other people, oh, wait, that's not how we become God's people. It's not by you, it's by God. And I know that's a hard thing for us to get, but the reality is salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is primarily based on God's choice, God's plan, God's love. Now, I could ask the same question in Israel. Why did God choose Israel? Why them? Why didn't he choose Egypt? Think about it. Really, think about it. Why did God choose to give promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and not Abraham, Ishmael, and all his descendants? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why? Right? It doesn't say. It really, it doesn't say. All it says is, God says, here's why I chose that. Because I chose that. And that's it. Okay. So, that might be hard for us to understand. But the same thing is true today. God chooses to set his love on people. Right? Then we can say, well, how does that work? How, how does that all happen? Well, here's the people that God chooses to set his love on. Okay? The people who hear the gospel, like you're hearing it now. The people that humble their hearts. Because in retrospect, that means looking backwards. When you look back, what you're going to see is, God humbled my heart. I didn't humble my heart. God humbled my heart. So God is the one who leads us to salvation, and God is the one who saves us. How are we saved? By impressing God, by being better than others? No, not by that. Deuteronomy 7, verses 8, 9, and 10, say it wasn't because they were great, but it's because God chose to love them and because God was keeping his promises. What is that all about? What promises was God keeping? Okay. Under letter C, I'd love for you to write this passage down. Genesis 12, verse 1. Genesis 12, 1. That's the first time God made a promise to Abraham tell, telling him, your descendants are going to have a special land. They're going to have a special place where they're going to live. Okay. Genesis 12, 1. Also, Genesis 17, 7 and 8. Okay. Right next to Genesis 12, 1, you can write down Genesis 17, 7 and 8. Here's what that says. God talks to Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. And throughout their generations, all of them, for an everlasting covenant. I'm making a promise and I'm going to keep this promise. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 8. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning. So Abraham was kind of traveling around in tents in this land. Not in tents, but in actual tents, like that you could buy at REI, you know, tents, 
You know what those are? Camping, tents, right? That's what Abraham was doing for a lot of years, okay? He was camping out. And God says, I'm going to give the land that you camped out on, I'm going to give your campground uh, to your descendants. They're going to own the land. They're going to build houses there. They're going to do all these awesome things. They're going to do it there. It says, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So that was promised hundreds of years before Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy, God's just saying, one of the reasons I'm giving you this land is because I'm just keeping my promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, how does that work today? Because again, that's talking about these people, these Israelites. How does this work today? I'd love for you to write this passage down. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. Titus 3, 3 to 6. It talks about Christians, and here's what it says. For we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay? So how does this work now? This works by God pouring out mercy on us, so to speak, giving us mercy. By what? By us hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel, hearing the bad news of our sin, hearing the good news that Jesus died to save sinners, and us trusting in him alone, not ourselves, but trusting in him. Says that's God's work. God does that. I want you to turn to a passage in the New Testament. Grab your Bible. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 here. The New Testament, we're going to see this passage because we're going to look at this in small groups as well. But I want you to see that this tells the whole story. Really tells where Christians start out before they're ever Christians, which might be where you're at right now. Maybe you're not a Christian yet. Maybe you're new to this. Maybe you're person who hasn't responded to the gospel yet, I want you to start to understand more about what that means. Here in chapter 2, it talks about where people are before they become Christians. Ephesians 2 says, talking to people who are Christians now, he says, and you were, past tense, you guys were Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So, what's the analogy he uses here? Does he say, you were, um, you were tired in your sin and you just needed some energy? He doesn't say that. The illustration he gives here is not that you needed some help, but that you were completely helpless. There's a difference between the two. The analogy he gives there is, it's like you were dead. You ever been dead? No, the answer is no. You've never been dead. Okay? You've never been dead. Do you hear that? You've never been dead. Even if you think you've been dead, you've not been dead. Okay? You've just not been alive, right? That's different, right? These people, it says, it's like they start out dead in their sins. What does that mean? It means they can't do anything about it. Same thing's true for you. You can't do anything about that. Dead in your sins. And then it says, in the sins in which you once walked, what did these dead people do? Well, they did something. It says they were following the course of this world, doing what everybody else did following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. Paul literally says, before these people were Christians, they were dead in their sins, they did whatever they wanted, and you know who they were really following and they didn't even realize it? They were following Satan. 
even though they didn't understand that. They were doing whatever Satan wanted them to do. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. That all is talking about not just the, the Gentiles, but also the Jewish people. That includes me, you, everybody. Everybody lives in this state at the beginning, following the course of the world, doing whatever they want. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what he says about everybody. That's how everybody starts out. Verse four, but God does something about this. Here's the difference. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It doesn't say that God helped people who needed a little bit of help and gave them a little bit of extra help and instruction and then they got back up on their own two feet on their own. It says that these people were dead in their trespasses and sins. And that is true of every person in this room who's a real Christian. At one point in time, you were dead. God had to make you alive. The scarier truth, for those of you who are not right with God yet, is right now, that's your state, the place where, where you are right now. If you're not right with God yet, it says you're dead in your sins. God has to make you alive with Christ. It says, by grace you have been saved. Verse six talks about all the blessings that God gives to these people. It says, and raised us up with him, giving us resurrection life, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now we have a reputation and a place with God that we don't deserve in heaven. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's like for these people who are saved, they haven't even seen the beginning of all the blessings God's gonna give them one day. Verse eight, it's a famous verse, you might know it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, okay? By grace, grace, that means a gift. That means God has to do it. That means you can't do it. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay. Why can you not be seven feet tall? Why can you not be seven feet tall? Unless you are seven feet. No, none of you are seven feet tall. The tallest person in the room is probably McGill. Yeah. How tall are you? Six two. Yeah, you're the tallest, probably. No, Andy, are you taller? What are you, six two? I, I don't know. We can go back to back after. Why can you not be seven feet tall? I don't understand. Why can't you be seven feet tall? <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Have, am I the only one who's thought, why can't I? I don't actually want to be seven feet tall. But if you think about it, why can't you be seven feet tall? Because God did not make you seven feet tall. God made some people seven feet tall. He did, right? He, he could have made you seven feet tall, right? Unless you get some stilts on or something, you know what I'm talking about? Like the big, tall platform shoes. I know some of you girls, you think, oh, you know, it will be really cool if I wear really high platform shoes. That'll make me look tall. Every girl goes to that stage, and it's like, dude, you're a little taller, but not, it doesn't change that much, right? It's like, if you're, if you're going to be 5'1", ladies, you're going to be 5'1", okay? You're going to be 5'3", on a good day, when you wear your high heels. You might even be 5'5", if you wear platforms, but you're not going to be seven feet tall. You're probably thankful for that, right? What was I even saying, okay? Here's the point. God would have to do that. That would have to be God's doing, because you can't do that. 
Same with salvation. God has to do that. It's a gift of God, not as the result of works so that no one may boast. Which is why if, if you told me, hey, I'm really trying to be seven feet tall. It's a goal of mine. It's a, it's a goal. It's a small goal. I, I, I want to be seven feet tall. I'd say, but how, how are you going to do that? Like, oh, I'm just going to stretch just a little bit. I'll just, you know, do stretches. I'll get the ankle bracelets. I'll start jumping. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. You know what I'll tell you if you tell that to me? I'll say, ah, you know what? I just, I don't, I don't think you're going to get there. I think that's impossible. Um, if you're a good friend, you tell that to that person too, right? Because it's impossible. You can't do it. If God did it to you, I guess then it's possible. Since salvation is by God, not by you, not a result of your works so that no one may boast. Look at verse 10, last verse here. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Even the good things, even the good, awesome things that God wants his people to do. Guess what? That's still God's plan. That was still like God, God set out those good works and you're just doing what God wants you to do. That's, ama- that's amazing. Really, think about that. That is amazing. This land that the people were supposed to enter in Deuteronomy. Guess what? God's plan. The good works that God wants you to walk in. Guess what? That's God's plan and you're gonna walk in them. It's, it's amazing to think about. How do people become God's people? By God's choice. Now, this passage is very clear. We're saved by grace through faith. The way that people become Christians is by trusting in Christ for salvation, by calling out on him, like that tax collector did in Luke 18 that we looked at, by calling out on him, asking him to save you, not trying to save yourself. Now, verse 10 talks about what God expects out of his people. He says, I want you to be my workmanship. That's what Deuteronomy 7 says about these Israelites. My people, I want them to do things for me. I want them to be holy to me, different, distinct from the rest of the world. That's what I want them to be. That was true then, it's true now. God wants his people, everyone who trusts in Christ, those are his people. He wants those people to be different than the rest of the world. Point number two is this, I'd love for you to write this down. See what God expects from his holy people. See what God expects from his holy people. What does he expect? Well, it says one thing about these people. It says that you are my treasured possession out of all the nations of the earth question for you. Candy. Let's talk about candy for a second. What's your favorite candy? You can shout it out. What's your favorite candy? Lemonheads. Mashed potatoes? What? Seas candy, okay. Sour Patch Kids. Snickers. Milky Way. Whatever Joe can get his hands on. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? It's like uh, whatever you have at home. So you know how sometimes your family, and this might not be true of some of you, but it's true of me, we had a candy bowl, okay? My parents would buy candy, dump it in this bowl, and we were allowed to have like one or two pieces a day or something. Do your parents do that? No? Okay. We were blessed. Hashtag blessed. Um, but I didn't care so much about their candy because it's like, oh, it's, it's the house candy. It's like with food. You know when you got leftovers or or something at, at home. It's like, well, yeah, that's like the family's food. But what happens when you get candy from like Awana or from like somewhere at church or the Bible Buck store and you bring home your own candy and you got your own little pile, okay? You treat that candy a little bit differently than you treat the candy from maybe the candy bowl that the whole family has. You know why? Because you're like, that is my candy, okay? That's my candy. I, I have access to a lot of other candy, but this candy... My little sister, she cannot have this candy. 
And if she has it, you'll throw a fit, right? Um, or hopefully not throw a fit, but you know what I mean, right? You don't like it because it's mine, right? I have access to a lot, but this, this little group, that, that's, that's special to me. This word treasured possession is used a couple times in the Bible to talk about people's stuff. Two times, in fact. It's talking about um, different kings in the Old Testament who had access to a lot of stuff, but they had their own special stash, okay? It's used of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes where he had a lot of stuff, but there was a specific select group of stuff that was special to him, different than the rest of the stuff. That is what God is saying about his people. I own everybody. I'm in control of the whole world, but I have a special care and concern for some of them, okay? Psalm chapter 24, verse one says this, the earth is the Lord's, everything, and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. So that means every person on this planet belongs to God. God is their their God, right? But Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 8 to 10, the end of our book, talks about all the nations. And here's what it says. When God, the Most High, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, or Israel, Israel is his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in a howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Basically saying, there is a group of people who are God's favorite, so to speak, his special ones. That was very clear about this group of Israelites, that they were supposed to be that group. In Exodus 19, we already looked at this passage, but Exodus 19, five and six said that these people were God's holy people, his treasured possession. The ones that were supposed to live for him, even when the whole world did not, they were supposed to live for him. Same thing's true of Christians today. That while the world does whatever they want to do, Christians, God's people, we're supposed to be the people who are special to God, doing what God wants. Even if the rest of the world doesn't listen, we're supposed to listen to what God says. I want you to turn to one more passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're in Ephesians 2, Look to the right a few books. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this. It's so important. 1 Peter 2 talks about how Christians today are God's people, just like these Israelites were. They were God's people, special to God, unique, different from the rest of the world. Now, are we a nation among other nations? No, but we are a group of people in every nation. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Check it out. It says, But you, talking to these Christians, you are a chosen race. The word race is like that word for family group, right? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So it's used in the Old Testament to talk about Israel. It's also used to talk about Christians today. We're people for his own possession. What are we supposed to do? That you may proclaim the excellencies, the amazing things about God, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, you were not a people. Same thing is true of you. We, we were not a, a specific group of people. We didn't have an identity apart from Christ. We're part of a million different groups, right? You could call yourself an American. You can call yourself a Californian. You can call yourself an Orange Countyan or whatever you call yourself, right? But well, you weren't like a special group of people, but these Christians in Christ, you are a people. Because once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, talking to these Christians. You've received mercy from God. Verse 11, beloved, which again, loved by God people. I urge you as sojourners, that means people like Abraham who are just camping. They don't have homes there, but they're just camping in a land. 
says, that's what you're like in this world. You're like camping, going through the world, just camping in this land. You're sojourners and exiles. I urge you as campers in a land that's not your own, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't do what everybody else in this world does, which wage war against your soul. That means for Christians, this world is going to battle your heart. They're gonna want you to do whatever you wanna do, not what God wants you to do. A lot of your friends are gonna want you to do whatever you wanna do, not what God wants you to do. A lot of the people, a lot of the entertainment, the music, the movies, a lot of what they're gonna wanna do is get you to not serve God anymore. You just need to know that. Just as soldiers and exiles, abstain from those passions of the flesh. Verse 12, keep your conduct, so the way that you actually act, among the Gentiles, the people that are outside, keep that honorable. Be honorable in the way that you treat non-Christians. Make sure the non-Christians know that you're not the mean person. Make sure that they see your life and they see that you're not disobedient to your parents. That they see your life and they know that you're not mean to everybody. That you don't have a bad reputation with them. Make sure they see that. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, which the world will look at a Christian, it might be you, and the world will say, you're the mean one. You're the unloving one. You're the unkind one. That's what the world will say to Christians. But Peter says, when the world does that, they should be able to look at your life and say, well, I guess they're actually not really that mean. They're super, they're super kind. They're super nice to me. So they're not actually evildoers. Even though I, I said that they were unloving, I know that they've showed me love. Right? Make it hard for them to be able to say that. That's what Peter's saying. So that they may see your good deeds and actually glorify God one day. God expects his people to live a different way. For you, that might look like you obeying your parents when everyone on your soccer team or your baseball team says, I don't care what my parents have to say. For you, that might look like being the only one in your class who's willing to actually do what the teacher says, even when everybody else, everybody else, air quotes, isn't doing it. It might mean that you're the only one that's not cheating on those tests when everybody else does, and I guess if everybody else is doing it, it's not that bad. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be unique. You're supposed to be respectful of your teachers and the one who's not complaining about every assignment when everybody else does. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be unique. That takes a lot of different forms in our world today, but I want you to think through some of those. It's interesting. There's a time in the New Testament, Colossians 3.12, where Paul says, as God's chosen people, you need to have different attitudes. And he connects the attitudes they're supposed to have, like forgiveness, like compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. He says, as God's chosen people, his special people, the people of his own possession, have these right attitudes with these other people. You need to think about things to say no to, those passions of the flesh. You need to think about those things that you need to embrace, those new attitudes, those new actions, even if it makes you look different, especially because it makes you look different. I've got a picture sent to me this morning from my dad of someone who looked different, really different. He's, uh, he's in Texas right now, or he's just flying back or something, and um, he sent a picture to me and my family of this dude with the biggest cowboy hat you've ever seen in your life. Like, I'm not talking about one of those, like, you know, cowboy hats where you can just imagine, like, it's like a fedora. No, not like that. This thing was, like, diameter, three feet. 
three or four feet, this huge thing. And he's just wearing it like in a Chick-fil-A. Just, it's all cool. It's good. It's just like how you would wear like a, a baseball hat. Like he's wearing his cowboy hat. Like thought that's the weirdest thing ever. That's my thought. I think that's why he sent me the picture. That's so weird. And then what I thought was, could you imagine if I got a hat like that and I just wore it around Orange County? Could you imagine that? What would happen to me? Everyone would stare. It's like, you know, that, that Lightning McQueen car that you see around town? Have you seen that? It's so weird. Um, I don't know. If you've seen it, you've seen it. If you haven't, whatever. Um, but it always sticks out to me because I'm like, what is that thing? Like, you got to be the only one in the world who has that car. That's, that's, that's awesome. But you definitely stick out. It's different. Right? The cowboy hat, I thought, if I wear a cowboy hat, everyone is going to think I am lame. So maybe I should get a cowboy hat. Because, yeah, I don't know. But like, I thought, no, I'm not going to get a cowboy hat. But if I wore it, everyone would think, oh, there's something different about you. That's weird. Maybe you're from Texas, right? Well, that might be embarrassing to wear a cowboy hat around here, and it probably is. A lot of people are embarrassed to live for God in a world that doesn't. I just need you to recognize that even if obeying God does make you look different, like a cowboy hat probably would, that in the end, being different for God is the thing that's going to separate, like we said at the point number one, the special people to God and the people who aren't. It's important for us to recognize that as we start to think about what does it mean to be God's chosen people, that we say, I am excited and willing to be God's chosen people. Not something I'm scared of, but something I'm excited about. Something that I can't earn on my own, something I can ask God for. And that's really what this comes down to. Can't be God's chosen people simply by trying to be a better person. You become one of God's chosen people by trusting in God, by turning to him, by calling out on him for mercy, asking him for salvation. That's, that's how it works today. Now, for some of you, that's, that's new information. For others of you, maybe you think you've done that. Well, we're gonna talk about all that in small groups tonight. Talk about all those different things. So I want us to pray before we move out there. I want us to pray that God would help us understand more about this, that he'd teach us more tonight, even in small groups. So let's pray for that right now.